Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled, The Opportunities of Failure, was given by Bill Dogtrum on May 8th of 2011. We are uh, taking a bit of a, of a break over the last couple of weeks uh, from our uh, series of sermons in the Gospel of Mark, and so I'm going to ask you to turn to where we were last week, uh, John, the, uh, that will be the next chapter, John chapter 21, um, where, uh, and if anybody needs a Bible, we've got a few around the outside. Does anybody need one? Uh, we've got one right here. Thank you. Anybody else? Want to pick one up uh, at the back there? Stephen, if you can, you got it? Thank you. Um, and you're welcome to take those if, if, you, uh, if, you, uh, if you want to. Um, we're going to be on page 884. For those of you who do not have the one that I'm using, that is John chapter 21. Uh, and we'll pick that up at verse, uh, verse 15. But to set that up, uh, last time we were in the upper room, a week after uh, Jesus had raised from the dead, we were still kind of figuring out what resurrection life looked like. And Jesus um, was sometimes helpful, sometimes not helpful in helping us figure that out. Uh, he is, is kind of leaving us kind of on our own as disciples to sort out what it means to follow him in the light of his resurrection. And he does that a lot. Uh, there are times when um, Jesus tells us specifically what we ought to be doing, right? And, and we have a good sense of, of the decisions we ought to make and so on and so forth. But there are other times when he just basically says, it's up to you. I don't really care what you do. I'm with you. Um, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Make the best decision you can, and I'll be at work in all things for good. And it's frustrating. Anybody really think that Jesus just ought to tell us exactly what to do all the time? So then we have the option of obeying or disobeying. Because that's what we do. Even though we know sometimes what specifically we want to do, uh, he wants us to do, we choose other than that because we're smarter than Jesus after all and know how life ought to be. No, we don't ever think that way, but that's how we, how we act or, or, or live. And I think Jesus is training us by his non-immediate presence into an alignment of heart that doesn't depend on immediate reinforcement. That's called faith. Right? where you know what to do, so do it. Even if it doesn't work, that alignment without immediate reinforcement is what it is taking to train our hearts in knowing and doing the heart of God, the will of God, even if we don't get immediate reinforcement for it. So that's part of what's going on there. So as part of that, then, the disciples, not knowing what else to do, go back home. They, at least seven of them here in this story have gone back up to, to the, uh, Nazareth, to the region of Galilee, to the lake, and they've got to make some money because this uh, Messiah gig didn't work out so good for them. And now we've got to get back to work. We've got bills to pay. We've got mouths to feed. We've got kids. Uh, Peter at least has a, has, a, has a wife and family. And so they decide to go fishing because they know how to do that, Right. And I think what's fascinating to, to me is that they, they, they've gone out fishing. They've not been a very successful fishing trip. Uh, they, they've fished all night, basically, with no, no results. 
And um, then the sun begins to come up and, 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 and turn the, the eastern sky uh, uh, pink. And just about 100 yards away on the shore, there's the figure of a man who calls out to them and says, you haven't caught anything, have you? And of course, they respond back, no. And he says, put your net over on the other side of the boat. I don't know what difference five feet more or less would make, 10 feet would make, but they decide to go ahead and do that, whether they recognize in the resonance of his command something that they have heard before three years ago when on this same lake in perhaps this same spot somebody else said to them, or maybe it was the same person said to them, put the net over on the other side. But in obedience to that, they do that and haul in a catch of fish so big that the nets are threatened. They catch 153 fish that day. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit thought it important that 2,000 years from that event, we would know how many fish they caught. 153. What in the world? Why does that matter? Right? And there's all kinds of speculation on that. The church had been trying to figure that out for 2,000 years. I just suspect that it was Jesus' way of saying, I can bless your fishing. There's, nothing, there's no shame in fishing. If that's your living, if that's what you do for a job, I can bless that. And I will bless that. Which I think is really important because the majority of people will serve Jesus by fishing. In other words, by doing their nine-to-five job day in and day out for the glory of God. That's going to be the primary way by which most of the people who make up the garden are going to be a redemptive presence in Long Beach or Seal Beach or wherever it is that you work. And Jesus is just saying, I know how to help you fish. I know how to help you add a column of figures as an accountant. I know how to help you uh, write code if you're a programmer. I know how to help you teach those students. I know, just invite me in to your everyday job and I know how to help you do that in my name. I think that's maybe what's going on there. But for at least one of those guys, uh, this was a different kind of event. Jesus invites them to, to bring their fish and share uh, in a breakfast that he has um, prepared for them. He doesn't need their fish when they arrive on land. He is already grilling fish. I just love that image of the resurrected Christ with his lot of kind of like this apron on, kiss the cook apron on, right? Some of you are going to be, ex how many of you are doing like a barbecue for mom this afternoon? Anybody like that? Yeah, right? So maybe just imagine Jesus with, with that, that apron on uh, over the grill, over the barbecue, right? Because he, he's got a charcoal fire going there. How many of you are believing that this is true? None of, look here, it's right here. It, it, it's right, right here in 21. Anyway, so he's, he's there, and he's, he's cooking up some fish, which, by the way, is also part of the story I was telling you last week, remember, of, of Jesus' demonstrating that it was not just his spirit, a ghost, that rose from the grave, but it was a, a body. Eating is part of the way that they demonstrate that reality. So anyway, they're entering into that. And then after breakfast, he takes, takes aside uh, one, of, one, of, one of his friends. And this is where we pick it up in verse 15, John chapter 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me 
more than these. He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go where you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will fasten a belt around you and will take you where you do not wish to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at supper, saying, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, what about him? Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. This is a, um, a wonderful and painful story for anybody in the room who has failed. It is a story that reminds us that failure is not final. That it is not the last word that is said about you as a person, and it is not the last word that is said about you as a disciple of Jesus, and that, in fact, failure prepares you for something brand new that you had no capacity for before failure. How many have learned things from failure? How many have learned more things from failure than by su from success? At least what not to do next time, right? But at the very least, failure creates a condition of heart that enables us to learn into some new things that were simply not available before we failed. Yeah? So let's take it back. Peter, you recall, is the lead disciple. He's the one who uh, made confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By the power of the Spirit, he made that proclamation first. He is, he is the one who is always uh, speaking, uh, and, and at the same time, he is the one who um, uh, is, is regularly trying to correct and fix Jesus' misunderstanding of his own mission and ministry, right? P Peter's probably a couple of years older than Jesus and so assumes the elder brother role with, with this young Messiah who needs to be kind of whipped into shape a little bit uh, to, 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 to get, th get things right. Anybody else try and advise Jesus on how he ought to do stuff? Yeah, we call it prayer, but that's really what it is. Anyway, so, 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 so this occasion um, is, a, is a poignant one. After breakfast, uh, Peter's, Peter's, Jesus says, let's go for a walk. And, 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 and so they begin to walk. John is trailing along behind the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the little, the little brother, right, the youngest disciple. 
um, is, is, is far enough back to overhear the conversation, but not close enough to be part of it. Right? And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And you can hear the thump as Peter's heart hits bottom. Lord, you know that I love you. And again, a second time, Peter, do you love me? I don't think, I don't think Jesus is shaming Peter with this language. I think there's a twinkle in his eye. I think there's laughter in his voice. I think, actually, that Jesus is kind of tweaking Peter a little bit. He's teasing him. Do you, do you all have a, a Messiah who can do... Is, is that okay? If Jesus has a sense of humor? Yeah, oh, I hope so. Anyway, so, 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 so he's teasing him. Peter, do you love me? And Peter is starting to get a little, little, little upset, a little frustrated. Lord, you know that I love you. And then what I think Peter discerned this conversation was headed to was this third question. Peter, do you love me? And Peter was wounded in his heart because he understands what that third statement is. He begins, remember that first question with this question. Do you love me more than these? You see it there? In verse, um, verse, verse uh, 15, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? What's the these to which this question refers? Do you love me more than these? Well, first of all, it could be the fish, right? It could be your success as a fisherman. Peter, do you love me more than I am able to bless you in your career as a fisherman? It could be that. But I'm wondering if that language has an echo for Peter that, that we need to kind of put ourselves back into his story a little bit to hear. You may recall that about 30, 35 days before, they were in an upper room on a Passover night. Jesus had prayed for them, and then he had said that they would all betray them, betray him. Do you remember what Peter said? Lord, even if all of these betray you, I never will. And within 12 hours, Peter had denied Jesus not once. Peter, do you love me? Not twice. Peter, do you love me? But three times. Peter, do you love me? And Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus, in his three questions, reminded him of his threefold betrayal. Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know how ashamed and how afraid and how sad I am. You know that I love you. I don't think Peter was being shamed by Jesus. I think Peter, however, was being invited into the depth of his own shame. There's a difference, isn't there? 
We might not ever be shamed by God, but we'll do that ourselves. We'll do our shaming ourselves. And in order for Jesus to do what comes next, Peter has to fully embrace his own failure. That he wasn't the kind of disciple that he wanted to be. That he wasn't the kind of follower that he wanted to be. That he wasn't the kind of man that he wanted to be. That he ran away. In each of the three questions, there is a third beat that you've noticed I've missed. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Shepherd my flock. What is going on here? Is that Jesus is saying to Peter, I still have things for you to do. Your failure, your betrayal, is not the last word that history will record about you. All of that sadness and sorrow and shame, if you will embrace that and give it to me, I will create a space in which you still have work for me to do. Different work than you had when you started. Because what was Peter when we started? Do you remember? Same lake. Same story, fish on the other side, right? Peter said to them at the end of that story, what? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter's not going to be a fisher of men anymore. What's he going to be? He's going to be a shepherd of the flock of God. Now I'm going to suggest to you that not only was failure a prelude to that invitation, I'm going to suggest to you that it was a necessity. Here's what I mean. What words would you... This is audience participation time, so you ready? Wake, wake up your neighbor. What words would you use to describe Peter's character or temperament or manner or mannerisms before his failure? Haughty? Cocky, arrogant, proud, just exactly what we want in a pastor. <laughs> right? What did it take for Peter the proud to become Peter the humble? Failure. What did it take for Peter the arrogant, the know-all, the speak-all, the tell-all, to become one who had been trained in three words. Lord, no, four words. You know that I love you, however many words that is. What did it take for his devotion to Jesus to be reduced to one simple phrase? I love you. That's all you need to know. That's all I can say. What did it take? It took the crucible of failure. Can you imagine how unsufferable, insufferable Peter would have been had he not failed and been the pastor of the church? Can you imagine what it would be like? 
Yeah, look, look with me. Look with me over, if you've got, again, your Bible's open. Uh, just flip over a few pages to, to, to 1 Peter. It, it's the letter this guy writes. It's on page 986 of this version. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. He's writing as a pastor to, to the churches in, 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 under his care. Uh, and, if, and if you got it there, look at it. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He's, he says this, As an elder myself, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your care. Now notice, back, back it up, uh, if you would, to, to verse 1 again. Okay. Thanks. What doesn't he say here? I mean, if I were going to write this letter and I wanted people to listen to me, what would I remind them of? I might say, as the rock. I mean, Jesus said that about me, right? He said that about me. You're the rock. On you, I will build the church. So Peter might have been, as the rock, I want to say to you, Right? As, as the first disciple called, I want to say to you, right? As the one, the only one, might I remind you, who walked on water, I want to say to you. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? As an elder myself, someone who's just like you, Somebody who, who fits into the same category of leadership as you do. And, he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Where did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ? Certainly, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, where was Peter? He was at a distance, if there. Where did he see the sufferings of Christ? In the midnight hours? from inside the courtyard, sheltering himself with the other servants around a hastily kindled fire while they awaited the outcome of a kangaroo court, Peter was shamed by a little servant girl. That's where he saw the sufferings of Christ. He carries that not with shame, but as a badge of honor. Because he says, I'm also one who shares in the glory to be revealed. This is not, Peter is going to say, at all about me. What happened between that proud apostle and this humble servant? Failure. It enabled him to become the pastor that Jesus needed to trust his flock with. Failure opened the door to a new opportunity. It gave him the gift of another chance with a new heart. I'm wondering if there are some of you here for whom your failure, which you still perhaps shame yourself with, might in fact be a way of learning into a new 
way of serving. A new offering, a new gift, a new invitation of Jesus. Because notice what he says here. Look at this. Uh, at, at verse um, uh, 19. After this, Jesus said to Peter, what? See it there? Follow me. Do you remember what that means? We've talked about it when we did our series of sermons in Mark. What that means, if a rabbi says that to a, to a student, to, a, to an individual, what does it mean? I think you have what it takes to be like me. I think you can do this, Peter. I think you have capacity way beyond your... Uh, uh, your, 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 and in fact, I think your failure expanded your capacity so that you can follow me. I think you have capacity to follow me now that you didn't have the first time I invited you to follow me. I think you have things to do, places to go, people to see now that you didn't have before you failed. I think your failure has become a unique qualification for service that you couldn't have done before you failed. What's it going to take? Why is humility necessary for Peter and for any of us who have failed? Look at it in verse 18. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate by the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Typically, we interpret this, we exegete this to refer to Peter's literal death at the hands of Nero, crucified uh, upside down on a cross while being burned. That's how Peter died. Could be that. But I'm wondering if Jesus is just saying something else here. I'm wondering if he's saying that the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God is not at the end, but along the way. That Peter's range of options as a servant of the sheep is going to become smaller and smaller and narrower and narrower. Because while the shepherd sets the destination, who sets the pace? The sheep do. Who sets the way to the destination? The sheep do. You don't, as a pastor, get to have your own vision. You've got to attend to the vision that God has placed in the hearts of the people he has gathered as his church. And submit your personality to that community's way and culture and vision. And very, it works out in very practical ways. I had a, had a good friend who, who um, uh, received a, as a gift from one of the members of his congregation a used Mercedes-Benz. Beautiful car. Uh, any, any of you feel... Uh, oh, no, it's fine. Um, but anyway, he, he had received this. He had received this, and it was a wonderful car, great gas mileage, all, all of that. Didn't pay anything for it. This, this gentleman just wanted to bless his pastor. Then my friend was called to another church in San Bernardino at the height of the unemployment crisis uh, a few years ago. 
and discovered that he could not pastor his congregation while driving a Mercedes. They loved him, they cared about him, but it was a barrier for pastoral ministry. So he sold it and bought a car that would allow him to serve them. When you were young, you could drive whatever car you wanted, but when you're older, you'll drive a car that won't get in the way of your ministry to my people. When I first started out in pastoral ministry 30 years ago, uh, I um, knew what to wear every Sunday. It was a suit. I have a whole closet full of suits. None of them fit anymore. There's much more of me now than there was then, for which some of us are grateful. Um, not all. Um, but now, because when, when I'm not here at the garden, uh, I am often speaking out in other places as part of my role at the university and so on and so forth. Once, one, of, one of the first questions I, I ask when people ask me to come and speak, if I get a sense that the Spirit wants me to do that, I'll say, what's the dress code? Now, why do I say that? Because there are churches in which it's appropriate for me to wear a jacket and tie, and others in which if I showed up in a jacket and tie, I would not be heard. I preach regularly in another church, and if I showed up like this, they wouldn't hear me. I need to have a robe. I have a robe. I know how to preach in a robe. Now, what am I saying? I don't get to choose what I wear on Sunday mornings. Who I serve gets to make that choice. Right? Some of you have found that in your parenting role. It's one of the moments of grief that comes at the birth of a child. When you realize that for the next 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, in our case 30 years, we have them spread out. I have old boys and a young boy. We don't get to choose. We've got friends who have no kids who are taking vacations in Europe this summer. I'm going to Carlsbad. <laughs> I don't begrudge that a bit, nor do I begrudge them their trip a bit. Do, do you see what I'm saying? And Peter says to us, Jesus says to us, this is a certain way of dying to yourself. It's a certain way of dying to your desires, a certain way of dying for the glory of God. Made possible by the groundbreaking work of failure. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Lord, as we sit with this um, pastor's heart and watch how you delicately do work of redemption in this, your beloved friend. Um, Lord, we want that so much for us and our failures. As we said as a congregation this morning, I suspect that there are some of us who look at our lives and just all we see is the high water marks of failure. We, we can recount them with excruciating and painful detail. We're reminded of them often. Not by anybody else, but by ourselves. 
Lord, I pray that you will help us. Maybe this morning for the first time, lean into those failures as doors of opportunity into new ways of being, new ways of serving, new ways of living that simply weren't possible and open and available to us before we failed. You don't rejoice at our failures, O Lord, but you don't freak out either. You're willing to embrace us. And I just pray, O God, for men and women who are here this morning, who maybe have a sense of shame, a sense of failure, that you will, in the moments that follow, speak laughter and wholeness and joy and restoration into their souls. And new opportunities, doors opening that were not available to them before. In Jesus' name. Um, in the moments that follow, I'm sure. I cultivate Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from the Garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.